If you had one last chance to watch cricket, one last chance for the rest of your life to watch the game so many love, who would you want to take to the field? Join me, sports journalist Oliver Laurie, as we chronicle the life of the most important names in cricket, getting to know the person behind the personality. And along the way, we'll discover their cricketing dream team. The ground, batter, bowler, keeper, captain, fielder, and even lunch break snack that they would want to see as their time watching cricket, unfortunately, came to an end. Welcome to the Cricket Chronicles podcast. My guest this week is former England bowler, Monty Panesar. Still one of the finest spinners England has ever produced, Panesar was, on his day, nothing short of untouchable. His proudest moment? Trapping his cricket hero Sachin Tendulkar plumb in front for his first test wicket. The first of all would become 167 test wickets, a record only 21 men in the history of English cricket have broken. Someone who knows their trade really well, and they'll say to you, don't go right or go left. And suddenly you go left and there's the secret garden. Everything, you know? And your life just changes completely. It's sometimes easy to forget his on-field contributions, however. Even the most ardent cricket fans remember being swept up in the cult of personality that surrounded Monty, the fan favourite. I was big on bodybuilding when I was at university. Always loved, you know, lifting weights. So maybe become a super superhero in a movie or something. His look, his, to put it politely, temperamental catching ability and the self-authorised celebratory laps after each wicket saw him reach heights few other cricketers of his generation reached. He himself confesses buying into the so-called Monty Mania and profiting greatly from the profile this afforded him. But his successes didn't come easy. Few are prepared to deal with the astronomic rise that elite cricket can bring for people so young, let alone as the standard bearer for his Sikh faith in a wholly unrepresentative cricket world. He openly admits to his experiences with poor mental health, depression, paranoia, and schizophrenia diagnoses crystallizing these struggles that, to this day, few know about. During that time, he never thought about mental well-being, so you don't really know what's a failure. And so, whatever you make of his career, he is a product with unbridled talent, shaped and molded by the cult of personality which, while initially thrust upon him, he later welcomed warmly with open arms. He goes by many names. Monty, even his most obnoxious of nicknames, Palms Antoni. But call him what you will, his is a story which, at one point or another, touched us all. And whatever your opinions on him, won't be easily forgotten. Not yet, at least. I really hope you enjoy our conversation. How would you describe your family life? Did you have a happy childhood? And I guess what are some of your I guess, fondest memories of when you were growing up? Yeah, like my parents were, for example, very hardworking people, but they always, you know, I had a local club called Lutan and Indians. And my dad's like, one of my dad's best mates, Hitu Naik, was running the youth section. So it was very much sort of like um, growing up as a seat, but also playing cricket, playing sports, very outdoor life. Comparing it to now with everyone's on iPads and iPhones, you know, young kids, I remember being so outdoorsy, always just, you know, playing sport. Um, and then also like, you know, I remember one game where I took seven for 35 and my parents, we had a box of cards and my parents took me to Worcester Royal Grammar School and, uh, Paul Taylor the week before he was a left arm senior at North House, but also the under 15 Bethesda coach. She goes, look, I'll be honest with you, Monty, you're not going to make it as a left arm bowler. You ain't going to become the next Wazzy Macram, which I want to become. 
because you've got a better chance of maybe you know spinning the cricket ball you've got long fingers and broad shoulders why don't you just give it a chance next game ball you know ball some spin and up next game I bowled and I took seven for 35 and I went back to Paul Taylor and he goes oh mate he goes that's it you, you stick to left arm spin don't come you know don't like you know do your left arm a fast bowling so then for me my sign of cricket's Paul Taylor because you see, if you never told me to become a left arm spinner I don't think I would have become or I don't think I would have played for England so you know in life you kind of think you meet someone in life you know it could be a guy a guidance a mentor someone who knows their trade really well and they'll say to you don't go right or go left and suddenly you go left and there's a secret garden it's everything you know mm. and then your life just changes completely and that's what Paul Day that did he said mm. to me don't be a fast bowler be a left arm spinner next thing you know you know I will uh, I accelerated through the ranks and very quickly you know played for all times mm. widening back to your childhood again what was your earliest cricketing memory not necessarily playing but in terms of maybe seeing it on television or or being introduced to it by your family? Yeah, like there's two probably memories. My first cricket bat was Centurion bat. I was a 10-year-old and uh, um, I remember Gordon Greenwich telling me the way to play uh, a forward defence is go out with your bat and pad out in front of you, you know, your pad, but your back leg, sort of your toes are kind of, you know, twist and they square on. So you twist the back leg and then you play that. And then also, I remember my name being on CFAX when I played for Bedfordshire Minor Counties, and it was like the biggest thing. Oh my God, Monty, your your name's on CFAX. It was like, you know, you you're one of the famous guys, you know. And probably that was probably the last year of CFAX, maybe I don't know. But um, yeah, it was it was a big deal, you know, having my name on CFAX. Mm, yeah, I know. So I don't know how many of your listeners will remember what CFAX is. Was cricket then something that was sort of integrated into your? family structure as well because it sounds like if the first memory you have of cricket is when you started playing when you were sort of eight nine ten years old does that mean that you weren't introduced to it from a really young age were, were your parents for example into cricket yeah like my dad was playing cricket he used to use an all-rounder i used to go with him to school as a 10 year old uh i think i was eight find something like that i used to do the scoring for his games Wow. And um, he obviously, I think he got 36 in one game and used to be like first change fast bowler. So he used to play a little bit of cricket and that's how I got into cricket by, you know, doing a bit of scoring and then sort of understanding the game a bit more. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Now, Monty, you know how this podcast works. Um, we're going to imagine that you only have one more chance to watch cricket the rest of your life and we'll intersperse that into our discussion. Um, yeah. How do you think you deal with not being able to watch cricket again? Well, I suppose it would be very difficult for me because um, I've actually, I, I watch a lot of cricket. It, it, it's, it's this huge part of my life. So if I wasn't able to watch it again, I would definitely need a very good substitute for it. So then I don't get ever the thought of watching cricket again. <laughs> That's all right. Well, uh, in that case, we'll make sure that the uh, the dream scenario that we get from you today will be the best possible send-off so that if you do have to only watch your substitute again it won't be quite as tragic and heartbreaking as, as it might be so monty yeah. if you had one last chance to watch cricket where would this game take place at lords i would say england versus australia the ashes what is it about lords in particular i think it's just uh, everything about it the whole history of it just the experience of the day is brilliant the food is amazing 
probably hopefully sitting, you know, in the MCC members or the corporate boxes. Now, Monty, if I were to go into your attic and dig out, or loft for the British listeners, and dig out a school report of yours, how do you think it would read? Were you a teacher's pet or a bit of a troublemaker at school? I think they'll say he's like really good student, loves his science subjects, good at mathematics, geography I was really good at, PE, obviously. History was probably slightly my weaker subject, English literature, English was my strongest point, so I was much more inclined towards science than arts but then later on in life now i've become much more better with like languages and um more sort of you know english the english language and everything because of the journalism so it's interesting how the tables have turned yeah to steal a question that was posed to theresa may what was the naughtiest thing you ever did while you're at school did you ever get detentions for anything <laughs> probably the naughtiest thing i ever did um uh, i think i was playing the hairy fairy in the Cinderella, Cinderella thing. I was a hairy fairy and I forgot my lines. And I think I started to cry because I couldn't remember my lines. And uh, were you punished for that, were you? Not really punished, but I felt embarrassed because yeah. the whole everyone in the assembly was watching us and I was a hairy fairy and I couldn't <laughs> remember my lines and I got rather upset. I'll say the amount of money I'd pay to see a video of that production. Um, Monty, I find that absolutely fascinating really about your time at school because especially considering others I've spoken to who um, have succeeded in the really at times harsh world of elite cricket, school for them was almost like a necessary evil. So they had to do it, but actually they were spending their time thinking and dreaming of, if only I could get out of this classroom and, and go play cricket and practice my skills. And I wonder because you you're very accomplished academically and I guess you don't mind me saying that you got great good grades at school um I won't read out your individual results you got a bachelor's degree in computer science and also a, a master's in journalism now at, at what point when you're growing up did you think okay I'm genuinely good enough at cricket to make a living out of this or did you always have a plan b where you you were going to use your studies to fall back on yeah, I think at the age of 16 when I made my minor county's debut and, and I remember bowling 30 overs, 2 for 75 against Cambridgeshire at Waldown Park. Wade Larkins was that slip. He played for North Hands. And he goes, he goes, I think he's going to play for England. He goes, you've got a lovely action like Bishop and Beatty, lovely flowing action. And I think you're going to do really well. So that's when I realised, you know, against adults, as a 16-year-old, you know, I, I was able to hold my ground. And I kind of felt like, yeah, I, I reckon I can go all the way here. Mm. And what do you think you'd have been if you weren't a cricketer? Probably worked in the city somewhere or trying to become an actor, you know, trying to maybe become the next Dwayne Johnson or something like that. I was big on bodybuilding when I was at university, always loved, you know, lifting weights. So maybe become a super superhero in a movie or something. I say we'll see The Rock play the hairy fairy. Yeah, get Rock to play the hairy fairy and I can be maybe uh, one of the guys from Avengers. See, I find that fascinating. So that's something don't people, I guess, know about you. What what is it about acting that that took your fancy in that sense? Well, I think I'm very good at picking up people's mannerisms, their, the way they talk, the way they, you know, uh, use their word sentences, and I could sort of copy them very quickly. Maybe because I'm also maybe I'm good at observing or something like that. A lot of people people do say, you know, you should maybe go into acting, or you know, you pick up things very quickly. Just words, mannerisms, the way they talk, 
like the way they would talk about some subject interests and all suddenly you know be like that so um yeah it, it's quite interesting how people sort of catch on to these things fascinating now Montesami, so you're you're at lords um and then i want you to imagine you're looking out to the middle and you have the chance to choose one batsman from any era to be playing in this final match that you see which singular batsman would you choose to see and why i think it has to be Sachin Tendulkar because i remember during the one day at, at the Oval, he bought 90 or something. But it was just like, everyone in the team was like, actually, uh, we just want to see him get 100. And the way he was placing the ball, you would have a cover, an extra cover, and you place it in between them exactly. And it was just, I haven't seen anyone place the ball beautifully with the fielders. It was just beautiful to watch. Honestly, watching Tanuka live was... I think one of the most complete sportsmen I've ever watched. It was unbelievable. If the opposition want to see him score 100, you know he must be doing something right. right. Now, Monty, people may forget, but you had nothing short of an astronomic rise at the start of your cricket career. Um, you were picked to play for England in the 19s in 2000 and made your first class debut just a year later but then you'd have to wait until 2006 to make your test debut for England uh, and I just wonder after those early years where you burst onto the scene sort of a, a young spinning revelation with that natural left arm action how difficult were those five years where the progress you made in the game I guess while still remarkable slowed down quite significantly yeah, I think the instant, what it was, is that for me, at the time, I think Duncan Fletcher was a very much an observing coach. So he would watch me bowl a lot. But he, wouldn't, he would like give me the space to work out things. So I would have to work it out, but I wasn't very good at illustrating it or communicating it to the coach. And maybe it was maybe my upbringing, because I remember Mike Atherton writing a really good article saying that when I was as a, as a British Asian coming through the system, we kind of like were just, even my, you know, People around me will say, you always respect, let's say, the coach or the captain and you never question authority. Whatever they say, you implement what they ask you to do. And I, was, I found that very easy, like, oh, get me a wicket, hold an end up, do this, do that. But then when it, when it got to the position of, like, after Duncan Fletcher left and then Peter Moores came and he was very much a hands-on coach, process-driven, okay, how do you get, what, how, what are your action and all that? And I think I was, I remember Jeffrey Boycott saying to me, because Monty, just tell everyone to, I've got two words for you, the second word is off. And, it may, you know, F off, everyone, because I was just a naturally talented cricketer, somehow just worked out things, figured things out myself, and was able to take wickets and, and bowl well. But I just, I didn't know how to explain it. And I think, that's why I worked well under Duncan Fletcher, because you would observe with Peter Moores, I wasn't good at articulating. I should have maybe maybe needed someone to help me and say, look, this is the type of coach of Peter Moores. You gotta uh, we can help you to maybe tell him this is how I bowl, this is what you need to look out for. And probably after that wasn't I, I did well under him, but then it kind of fizzled away because when Shane Moore said he's but he's played thirty-three test matches same way which is bowling one stop delivery to get a wicket 
people felt that it actually maybe that's true because he hasn't worked out but he's got no variation if he never said that comment i think i probably would have played longer but i think people started to work out saying hang on a minute um maybe he doesn't know how to bowl a slow one but i did i knew how to bowl a slow one. i knew how to do because it, it was very instinct when he playing cricket but when you're at international level you've got to explain these things and sometimes you just you just don't know you just play on instinct when you play sport and you know it's difficult to explain these things because you don't you've never explained you just thought oh yeah someone's coming down the wicket i'll drop it short oh I'll, and then i bought it slower i'll do this you don't don't really ever it's natural because you've been brought up not to question authority that you don't ever challenge what they say to you yeah interesting and you've spoken before about just how important confidence is um and i know you mentioned an article of the spn creek info that Freddie Flintoff gave you the belief that you needed, that you could play test cricket. Um, but in that time, you had so much potential which hadn't quite been realised yet before you made your test debut. How did you deal with that affecting your confidence? And I ask that because people forget you were really young at that time, weren't you? Because you're, when you're looking to make that progression onto test cricket, you're only, what, early 20s at that point? 23, and I think I really enjoyed just bowling against the best players. I always wanted to get the best players out. I was always attacking in my mindset. I'm going to attack the stumps. I'm going to turn the ball. And I really enjoyed playing against the best players. I think the best players... I got better the more I played international cricket. Like, for some people, when they when they play in front of 20,000, 30,000 people, they kind of like freeze. But I embraced it. I was like, this is, I've worked hard to get to this, this play. It's every time I take a wicket, I'm going to go out there and absolutely enjoy myself and celebrate wickets. And I think that helped other cricketers who were in my team to say, you know what, I'm going to bring it. We're here playing for England. I'm going to enjoy my hundred. I'm going to enjoy my catch. I'm going to enjoy our wins. We're going to enjoy little moments of celebration. We're going to enjoy our successes. We're not going to freeze. And I think it helped a lot of the people during that time to really enjoy their successes and helped us win a lot more games. Uh, but uh, what I find fascinating about that is that that's coming from somebody or coming from you when you were really still quite young at that point. And I wonder, it was striking me coming from outside of, of that bubble that you might be intimidated actually by by that prospect of playing against the best players do you think it was a little bit of i guess exuberance of youth or sort of i guess ignorance of youth in that sense at just what you were achieving in that moment well i think that's sometimes great it's the unknown isn't it and youth is that energy they just they're curious it it just you know wants to just burst in the scene and enjoy whatever's thrown at them the freedom that they got and then when you're playing against the best players in the world, you're trying to get them out. You're just enjoying cricket. You're loving cricket. You're loving life. Whatever your goals and aspirations are, you're achieving them. There's no, like, obstacles. So all you know is how to rise in life. And you're just enjoying every moment. You haven't experienced failure. So there, then when you're playing against the best, you're like, because you've had so much, everything, all you know is success, 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 success. Your mindset is like, I'm going to get this guy out. You're already in a positive frame of mind. And I was taught from a young age, celebrate your success, celebrate your small wins, take a wicket, go on and celebrate. Look at how hard you work to play first team cricket, look how hard you work to play test match cricket. You know, don't don't just freeze when you get on in front of, in front of 100,000 people or 50,000 people, let them show them that, look how hard I work to get here and I'm going to enjoy every minute of it. Yeah, I love that positive mindset. Um, Monty, so you're at Lords, who would you want to see bowling at Sachin Tendulkar? Yeah, good question. Spinners, obviously. Probably the great Shane Warne. Be, maybe 
being a bit biased against seam bowlers, but yeah, not fairings. <laughs> That's all right. No, we can, I say, a, a fitting tribute to Shane Warne. If you're going yeah. to watch one last game of cricket, I think um, Shane Warne will be a, a really great choice. Thank you, Monty. Now, you had a remarkable test debut, and I'm sure your diehard fans who are listening to this won't need to be reminded that your first wicket was Sachin Tadorka, and your third was Rahul Dravid, and it really can't get much better than that. Um, but I wonder, at that time, when you were first getting into the England test setup, at least, did you feel welcomed by the England team, all those years ago in Nagpur? Or did it take time for you to feel comfortable as part of the, the England setup? Well, I think it was easy for me to be part of a successful team. 2005, they won the Ashes. Then I'm coming into a successful side. First time they won, beaten Australia after 15, 16 years. So for me, it was like, oh, this team's already on a high. This, you know, ECB cricket was on a high. It was become fashionable again. That big sponsorship deals coming through, breakthrough, TV deals. I was coming in an organization that was already on the rise. So it was easy for me to fit in. And it was just like, he, the, they embraced my energy. They go, go out and enjoy it for a week. Go out and celebrate it. And that's what I did. And I just celebrated my success. And I think they enjoyed that. They go, yeah, you know, I enjoy this new... Uh, I remember Michael Vaughan saying, he's just a breath of fresh air. He's just completely, you know, new breath of fresh air. Andrew Flintoff embraced my energy, loved it. He goes, he's hard working, he's just attacking, he loves spin bowling. And so did everyone else. And Peterson always a big favourite, a big fan of mine. And he always felt like, yeah, I was one of the best spinners in the world. So, um, yeah, they they kind of embraced it. He goes, they they felt like he does. He's not hiding away from a challenge. You know, anytime we give him the ball, he's gonna look to get wickets. And yeah, that that's what they enjoyed about me. So it was a completely welcoming and open dressing room culture then. Because as I said, I think even at that point, I imagine anyway, perhaps wrongly, that there would be some kind of shaking over your shoulder thinking, oh, who's this person coming in looking to maybe steal my spot? So was there any kind of I guess, tension in that dressing room at all when you were first playing? I think when you're first um, playing cricket and you're young, all you're thinking about is enjoying the moment because it's an unknown environment. And because at the time, um, you know, there was so much to do with life, uh, every player was so settled. They knew their role. They knew how to what, how to get the best out of themselves. Because the biggest thing for a sportsman is knowing their strengths and weaknesses and their roles in a sporting environment. Once you know where there's 11 pieces, you know where your piece fits. And all of them come together. You're like, you know, that's a winning sort of mentality. And if you've got 10 pieces which all fit together, then they know, all right, we know where Monty fits because we know there's so many, all the other players, they know their roles and their strengths. Mm. And it's a lot easier. It's going into a sporting environment or a team that's not successful, where then senior players are worried about their position. Youngsters don't know their role. The captain doesn't know how to formulate a winning side. Then everyone's looking over their shoulder, like, where do I fit in? I, and I, I'm not really clear about my role. What, what am I doing? What's asked of me? And that's where there's a lot of confusion. But that's the that's why I was very lucky. I got selected in an England squad that was already very successful. Mm, yes. And almost to go beyond just cricket, 
for a second. I mean, journalists are guilty of throwing this word around, myself included, but I guess many class you as a trailblazer in as far as you were the first to seek to play for England, put on an English shirt, and have also, I guess, beaten a path for, for the likes of other people from Sikh backgrounds. I'm thinking like Rabbi Bopara, and now you've got Liza Amaverdi knocking on the door as well. Um, were there times when you thought just cricket isn't necessarily a place for people like me? Yeah, that's a really good question, actually. Um, and within the media, how like the mystery spinner that Nasser Hussain said is he is the mystery spinner England need now. You know, they don't have anyone like him the way he drifts that ball. Like my skill set was so good. Like I remember when I bowled it in the air. It's like when you're spinning the ball, as you're spinning it, at the last end of the arc of the flight, if it dips in and it arcs, that means you're getting a lot of revs on it. And a lot of spinners couldn't do that. So drift for a spinner is like reverse swing for a fast bowler and at the time a lot of spinners couldn't drift it but i was able to get the ball to drift i was taking wickets taking big wickets like in my first year like 80 percent of my wickets were top six batsmen or the top it, it weren't chairland because it was the water batsman so when you're performing and you're winning games for your country when you're winning it doesn't matter everybody fits in you know sponsors love it fans love it that the, the media love it that's the impact of winning it doesn't matter you're winning the game everybody fits in everyone fits in because you're winning and after all you achieved um i wonder how greatly do you value the fact that even no necessarily you don't want to say it yourself the legacy that you leave behind goes far beyond any individual performance any delivery that got such intended all go out it extends to showing I guess, people from the Sikh community and, and British Asians all over the country, that there is a place for them in cricket and actually that they can succeed in, in this sport as you did, as you sort of started for them in that sense. Yeah, look, for me, right, it was like first Sikh playing for England, wearing a patka, people using the you know, fake beards and wearing the sort of patka and, and celebrating my sort of, you know, like, like how I was as a human being. It helped a lot of people in the Sikh community, British Asian community. It was like in corporate world, people, are oh, you want to, or, or you're this, or you're that conversation breakers and the way my energy was and then they loved it so yeah it was massive and now even now like i haven't played cricket for what 10 years i've international but the popularity the way people recognize me everything like that is still there so that's your legacy afterwards it's not the one runs and the wickets it's the fans who recognize you because if the fans still recognize you and they when you're popular you're still relevant you still have a huge impact in people's eyes. So, yeah, like, I think, yeah, my record, whatever, wickets and thingies are cheap, but the, the impact that I had on cricket, the impact I had on the Sikh community, the impact I had on this country, that was massive. That was huge. Like, the Monty Mania and everything, that's something you can't, yeah, you can't really, you know, you can't really you describe that. There's no price for that, you know, when... When you know the whole country is lifted just by your sheer love for the game, mm. and I wonder, just like final point on this one, then we'll move on. How aware of that were you at the start of your career and going throughout? Because, as I said, that's something which I guess when you're first starting your career, you're so focused on the cricket and and succeeding and doing everything you can to get the England team and everything. Um, and I wonder, were you aware in that moment? of the fact that you were going to be a role model for for the seat community for people in the seat community and british asians or were you just so focused on cricket that it was only later 
in life and later in your career that you started to reflect and think, oh, actually, my, my legacy does go beyond just taking wickets and scoring runs. It's actually bigger than this. I didn't realise at the time. When you're young, you just love cricket. You just think about, I want to play for England. That's my goal. And that's my destination. That's all you think about. You don't think about the wider things of life. You don't have the education. You don't have the awareness. Um, you know, you, you, all you know is around you is spinning a cricket ball, playing cricket, <laughs> enjoying winning games, enjoying just the contest against the opposition, come home, go to sleep, next day you do the same thing so that whole of the, the love for your game the love for your sport it, you just you just don't think about the wider things in society until maybe maybe when i started is a journalism degree in St. mary's and when the lectures challenged us in thought-provoking ways and it was like oh wow this is really interesting like i never saw the world in these sort of spectacles when I was a youngster, but now I'm like looking at it, I think, oh, that is that's really interesting that it sort of makes you think that it's very thought-provoking. Mm. Yeah, now, Monty, um, you've been lucky to play with many captains in your time, but if you were going to watch one final game of cricket and you've got Sachin, you've got Shane Warne at Lords, who would you want to see patrolling the field as captain? Good question. Um, Graham Smith. Interesting, why? I thought he was a good captain, just really good, solid captain. Um, yeah, never, I never got him out. That's why he averaged eight against the half-time spin, and just probably sit there and um, mumble away to my other colleagues in the in in, in at Lords and say, "Look, there he is." I never got him out because he's so good against the half-time spin. So a little bit of personal, personal baggage, shall we say? Well, yeah, I'm still like, yeah, still even now thinking about it, thinking I've never got Grimsmith out because you will say good leg as left arm spin. It's like quite annoying. <laughs> well, that's a good reason as any. Monty, you must have played against thousands of players in your time. Was there a cricketer, was there a, a, a player other than Graham Smith during your career where you'd go to bed the night before the game or during the game thinking, oh no, we're gonna have to, I'm going to have to bowl to this person again. I have no idea what I'm going to do. Yeah, probably Matthew Hayden was hard, difficult for me. Matthew Hayden was a, yeah, his sweep shot, just a monster of a bloke, you know, and that was, was quite intimidating. And Verinda Saywak as well, I was thinking, God, I'm going to have to bowl to him because he just whacks it everywhere. Um, yeah, them two. And, and equally, I'm thinking, um, I'm sort of thinking about how Stuart Broad's eyes light up when David Warner comes to the crease. Was there a player where you thought, great, I'm so happy I'm playing against this team and this player because I know exactly what I'm going to do. I know exactly what I'm going to get you out in this way. <laughs> There's been times when you're in good form and that's when the ball comes out, you have first six, seven deliveries are just on the money and you, and you feel good. You just know, like, I oh, know I'm going to get this guy out. I know this guy, you know, maybe plants his foot early doors or this guy goes after me. And and you're so confident that you don't even, like, maybe you look at the videos or whatever, but in your mindset, you know how you're going to get the guy out because you're so confident in the way balls, the ball is coming out. So, you know, like Brendan McCullough, he was like my, he was like my, you know, I used to get him out for fun. 
because I know he'll come after me every all the time and, and I'll just come on and I'll get him out straight away. And I enjoyed, you know, bowling to him because he would just plant his foot and he'd get a full stride forward. Um, so, yeah. And because I say the reason I'm asking this is because it strikes me, um, I guess more so in other sports, cricket is, I guess at its essence, a game of relationships, not necessarily as we've just discussed there with the opposition and who you're, you're thinking about who you might be playing against and what your plans might be. But that also extends to, I guess, going on for what we were saying earlier about what is happening within your own dressing room and with your own teammates. Now, I know that you spent uh, quite a lot of your time with um, with Graham Swan trying to be, I guess, competing for that number one spinner spot. I was wonder, not necessarily just with Swanee, but, but generally with players you've played with throughout your career, how did that level of competition impact your relationships were you spending most of your time not worrying about what they were doing were you spending your time trying yeah. to have a constructive relationship with them or was it a bit more doggy dog than that look i i, I played a lot with graham, graham, graham swan um at north Ads when we grew up and he was he was obviously a really good bowler back then anyway but i remember andy Plasic because one to you i think he got, got really like sort of healthy competition now and I, I, I do think that, you know, he's a good slip builder, good batter, and, and his bowling's good. Um, so I do think that, you know, you may only play as a second spinner on turning pitches. And that's what ended up happening. So to be honest, I knew that. And then I went to Sussex to learn a bit more about my bowling on slower decks, bowling slower, how to get batsmen out. And he was just a better bowler. He played more white ball cricket. He knew playing white ball cricket and how to get batsmen out and he was just better he was a better all-around cricketer and i just couldn't compete with that i guess for somebody who prides themselves on on performance and achieving what you have achieved in in so far as you've done such amazing things in your cricketing life and otherwise what was that moment of realization like when you realized that well i can work as hard as i want but there are going to be people better than me and there's not much i can do about that yeah just having that conversation really andy was very good he's a brilliant coach in that sense and that was his brilliance that he would able to give fair honest feedback to all the players and say look this is where you're at this is where you're at really like constructing and putting pieces together and how to build a side um i knew then i knew very quickly that look my batting isn't good at it i'm not in the field i wasn't that good bowling wise probably compete with each other similar way but he became better he took more first class wickets and to be honest um i just felt that I'm, I'm, I, I, I had to accept that reality, and I end up maybe we won the Division Two Championship with Sussex. We were one of the strongest tides, and ended up sort of becoming a good bowler at Sussex. But I just couldn't compete. The skill set of Graham Swan was much better, you know. Yeah. And I just, I just had to accept reality. Yeah. No, interesting. Um, Monty, who would be your dream fielder? I guess patrolling the boundary or wherever you want him to be placed at Lords. Ben Ben Stokes. Okay. Because? Or Andrew Flintoff, just brilliant arms. They got really good arms. Throw it really hard and flat and unbelievable, yeah. Mm -hmm. So if I had to push you for one name, would it be Ben Stokes or Andrew Flintoff? I've only go for Andrew Flintoff. Mm, interesting. I, I I they're both cut from the same cloth, aren't they? Um, yeah, very similar. Yeah. Um but no, yeah, I'm sure. I say, I'm sure Andrew will be happy that he chose he chose him over there. So.
such as the nature of cricket as a sport, I guess, um, that the game is constantly examining this as a topic. And you don't have to speak about this if you don't want to, but you've spoken before about your own challenges with mental well-being um, in your book, for example. And I was wondering, on reflection now, can you pinpoint a time in your life where you sort of saw the warning signs or, or the early signs of, of your what would become your struggle with with mental well-being um, developing? Yeah, just I think what it, what it was, it was like, you know, when I'm bowling, you get endorphins every 60 balls. You get a wicket. But then when that starts to take 90 balls, then 180 balls, that is 270 balls. So I'm not, it's taking me longer to get that rush of getting a wicket. And suddenly you're fighting within yourself. A little drop catch, if you get angry with the fielder. Umpire doesn't give it out, even though it's out. You get angry at them. Fans, you know, say something, you get a little bit upset. Suddenly you're not loving cricket. And that's when I realized, I think I'm beginning to fall out of love with cricket because I'm not performing that the same level of high performance that I used to. And that's probably mentally putting so much pressure on myself and not realizing that I actually maybe be kind to myself, but I just put more and more pressure where it got to a point, I just thought maybe, you know, it's getting too much. I'm not performing the way I need to perform. And, you know, it, I, I struggled to get out of that. And instead, you know, I, I, I had to then, you know, get some help from the PCA and then work with them, you know, feeling a bit too, let's say, paranoid about my performances, about the game and everything. And that's when your confidence goes low and when, the, when you're performing well, your confidence goes high and everything is great. So, yeah, it's all performance related. If you're performing well, then it's not an issue. But if you're not performing well, then that starts eating away. Yeah, it's really interesting. I've never thought about it in the way that you described it, almost as, as an addiction to doing well to cricket. And then when you come off of that, for whatever reason, then that can sort of cause problems. Um, how early in your career did you notice that that sort of sense of needing to perform well for your mental well-being? When did you sense that starting to develop? I think during that time, you never thought about mental well-being. All you know from a young kid is, this is my goal, and you go and achieve it. That's my goal, I go and achieve it. So you're only going goes up the stairs, step by step, step by step. So you don't really know what's a failure. Do you know what I mean? Because even if you lose a game of cricket, you know you're going to play cricket again. You know, failure is like, oh, you lose a game of cricket, oh, but now you can't play no cricket this season. Now that is like, oh my gosh, I won't deal with that. So when you only know is success, up, 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 then you don't know anything else in life. And there's some sports people that that's, that's why become great. The lives of like Alistair Cook or um, like James Anderson, Henrik Peterson, for example, um, these great cricketers, and and because they've achieved greatness. So all they know is success, up, up, up. They don't know what failure is because they just mentally are so strong or they find through it, their place isn't under, you know, under question mark. Yeah. So there's more stress for a person who's fighting to get in the 11 than the one who's already guaranteed to be in the 11. They have much less pressure. Mm. Yeah. And 
I say you spoke about the PCA helping you and everything, but I wonder, and there's a bit of whataboutism with this question and, and you don't have to answer it necessarily, but if you had the tools that you've had since to deal with, with the things that you were going through, if you had that earlier in your career, how different do you think it would have been and maybe how much more could you have succeeded throughout your career? Yeah, just like little things like, you know, I was an athletic, so get myself a personal trainer, do one-to-one -one training and get much more athletic. How can I articulate and communicate, this is how I'm going to get a batsman out. You know, maybe I needed someone like who's played at the highest level as a mentor, as a guidance, an ex-England captain or something like that. Maybe Nasser Hussain, for example, or Ian Botham, David Gower. You know, these people who are in the media where I could speak to them on a one-to-one -one basis and talk about my cricket and they can help me. You know, this is guys who've been there to get me through it but that's such as life you know and, and now people ask me for not advice to say something I said always find someone who's done it at that highest level and make, make and make them your mentor your advisor so then they know what it's like and then they can help you navigate through that journey yeah and I guess that sort of it speaks to or is a testament really to, to the great work of the ECB and the PCA are now putting on, on player welfare and um and how good it is to see that that's happening. Um, but Monty, as a spinner, you'll appreciate, I guess more than most, the value of having a, a great wicketkeeper behind the stumps when you're bowling. Um, in this dream cricket scenario, who would you want to see behind the stumps? Yeah, good question, that. Um, probably Matt Pryor. Played a lot with him. He was a good wicketkeeper. So, yeah, have him behind the stumps. Was he the best wicketkeeper that you've, uh, you've ever played with? I think he was the hardest. Probably not the most natural gifted, but probably the, the hardest. Interesting. Now, um, to move on, Monty, uh, people may not know this, uh, but your your birth name isn't Monty. Uh, that's just a nickname that your aunt gave you, I think, if that's correct. Um, how old were you when that happened? I think um, that I was, I was only probably... Gosh, how old was I? I was probably about four or five, you know, when my auntie named me Monty. And yeah, that was it, really. <laughs> I kind of stuck. And when people ask you for your nickname, as you do in cricket, because my name was Mudasu then, if you have a, uh, a a smaller name, then you just say to yourself, Monty. Mm. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah, that was obviously, yeah, one of my sort of uh, nicknames. Yeah, and I wonder, is there anybody that still calls you Mudasu then? Now, no one really calls me that. Um, and it's funny how the name Monty is obviously, it's a British name, <laughs> but also it's my nickname. So I, I don't know, it's just yeah, how people can, you know, connect with you. It's, it's, yeah, it's unbelievable. Interesting. I only asked that because, um, and I may be completely wrong on this, and please correct me if I am, but I wonder, did you ever feel that Monty was, I guess, because it was an, a nickname of yours rather, was a personality that you maybe became when you stepped onto the field. And I guess when you had that sort of Monty mania, um, sort of brand almost attention from the media, um, almost in the sense that, you know, when you, when you were outside, you were, you, you were Monty and you had to play up to what people expected of you. I think when I celebrated my wickets, like I never thought the public would catch on to that, but they did. And they were loving it every time I took a wicket and I celebrated more when I took wickets, but. I didn't realize that the public would love it so much. And then the media loved it. 
Like my teammates in the England team said, look, just celebrate. We love it when you celebrate. It's, it's great for the game. It's great for cricket. People love watching cricket. And I, I remember some other football team, was it, when they scored a goal, they celebrated how I would celebrate. Uh, people, it started to like catch on as, like you said, multimania. People would follow my style of celebrations. But I didn't realize that people loved it. Like... So I suppose I just kept on going with it <laughs> because the public and the fans loved it so much. Mm. Yeah, and I guess given the focus um, on not, superficial isn't the right word. But given the focus on, as I said, that you know, the celebration, the Monty Mania, that sort of commercialized almost aspect. Um, given all that you faced throughout your career, um, I'm thinking also about when I guess blowers called you uh, Monty Python by accident rather than Monty Panasar. Um, I wonder, does that impact how you feel you succeeded during your career? Because I, I guess from the outside, at least, it would be easy to imagine that that could almost make you undersell what you've achieved because of that sort of jovial, jokey character that's always associated with your career when actually you've achieved things that other people could only dream of achieving on the cricket field. Yeah, I think, um, you know, with my clumsy mistakes I made, um, I think that didn't help. Do you understand? I made like clumsy mistakes in the field. And then um, that's where people thought, you know, silly drop catches. Um, then like, for example, uh, Bombay in Mumbai, it was Dhoni, chipped it in the air, my hand was there, and it landed 10 yards over the other side. It had lords, I tried to stop the boundary, and I got my foot over the line, it was four runs. So I was making clumsy um, like, like a, like a, you know, like a, a sort of, you know, that, that clowny mistakes. And because of that reason, that then led for people to think, yeah, there is that, they, they, they maybe they'd laugh at me because of my silly mistakes in the field, but as a bowler, they're absolutely with me. So if my fielding was brilliant, people wouldn't make, wouldn't make them comments. Mm. But does that all choice what I'm trying to ask is, does the fact that that's something that they associate you with even today does that make you sometimes i guess undervalue just what you achieve on the cricket field or are you confident enough in yourself to know that they might focus on those few mishaps that i wish i didn't make well it's my fault you know if i was a brilliant fielder i'll probably be valued more i'll probably be you know fielding a backward point making them great stops and then suddenly you know taking these wickets suddenly yeah your value will be much higher people would find you much more credible but if People, now, there'll be some people thinking, yeah, what a brilliant bowler, but a, a clumsy fielder. And and that does slightly undervalue you. But then people then also say, well, look at the great achievements he made with the bat. Look at the, you know, the wicket takes, wickets he took and everything like that. So then when, you know, people generally know who have good knowledge of cricket, he was a, like they say, a brilliant spin bowler, one of the best in the world. But if my fielding was really good, I think, and yeah, people probably would have thought well, my batting was good then, yeah, it probably helped me. But I think overall people, you know, know that this guy was a brilliant left-arm spinner. Yeah, I mean, that's I mean that's certainly true. And, and it is easy to forget sometimes just what you yeah. achieve, how difficult it is to achieve what you achieved, and also how many people, millions of people across the world have tried and failed to achieve what you achieved. Um, but Monty, listeners may now know that you're a master of international sports journalism, got it from St. Mary's. 
um, and you've made a really great transition into the world of world journalism, world of sports broadcasting. What is it about broadcasting, writing, commentating that motivates you to make that transition and to carve that career for yourself in the media? Yeah, look, I, I think um, I just enjoy journalism, really. I just enjoy the fascination of, you know, how journalism works, how like, you know, it just it's fascinating for me. I love it. I absolutely love it. And I want to become a TV presenter, a broadcaster. Um, I want to become like one of the best broadcasters in the world. Like, you know, one of my goals is like to be a Sky Sports presenter, to have my own show on Pork Sport, and then have my own chat show called Monty Meets that competes with Graham Norton and Jonathan Ross, you know, prime time. Like, you know, I have big ambitions and desires because I just love the way news is narr the narrative of the news, how you can be an influence to that media news, how you can hold authority and power to so many different things. So I absolutely love it. And it, it just, it's for me, it's like, what did I want to do after cricket? It was like, yeah, I want to work, you know, I can become my team. People say you've got a great personality. You can work on TV and do TV personality. Then I said, yeah, I want to be working in the media. Jobs didn't come straight away. So then I thought if I do a degree, then people take me seriously. I think they opportunities have opened up. People are like, yeah, okay, yeah, we'll take it a bit more seriously. But you can tell that that level of journalistic skills takes a while to get there. But ex-sportsmen who go into journalism and and do some sort of course, they're very high likely to 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 become a, a sports journalist and 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 a, and a media uh, broadcaster. Mm. Yes. Now, Monty, I'm going to give you the opportunity in this dream dream cricket match um, to choose a commentator that you can listen to commentating over the action that's going on. Um, who would you choose as your commentator and why? Nasser Hussain. I think he's brilliant. I think he's absolutely brilliant. I really enjoy Nasser Hussain. I enjoy Mike Afterton. He's really good. Ravi Shastri. Maybe them three as the panel. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'd say, I'll, um, given I know the relationship you have with Nasser, I'll, uh, I'll, give, I'll put him first. Okay, now Monty, we have one, only one category left. Um, but by the time this goes out, you will have just finished at the Legends League out in Qatar. Um, I wonder, what are you most looking forward to as you head out there? Um, and you can say the paycheck if you want. No, no, for me, I think I, I'm enjoying the reunion of playing with the other ex-legends. And it's, you know, really high-level cricket. And also, you get to know, like, what's happening in the cricketing world, what's happening with, you know, other leagues. You know, it's just a nice little catch-up around what's happening in, in cricket. And sometimes, you know, once we stop playing cricket, we don't get the opportunity to, um, you know, you can get quite isolated, you know, if you're not meeting people in the circles of cricket. So for me, it's many reasons. And and just, you know, seeing what other opportunities are out there. I had the Monty Meets podcast, which started from the university. And when I went to these leagues, I developed it further. I started interviewing them and asking about, you know, new and relevant topics. And it was really good. So, yeah, there's so many different things. But, yeah, it is, it is good fun just catching up with cricketers that you played against and with and i guess um what kind of preparation have you done i guess as physically in terms of preparing for a tournament like that and is that something that's replicated amongst the other legends who are going with you yeah a lot, a lot of the people would probably go to the gym a lot more rather than the cricket skills it's about your body fitness and then when you're there you bowl you do a, you know you die in so many years so that you you get into it very quickly it's more about the body staying fit so I do go to the gym quite regular. I do maintain, you know, my fitness because that really helps, you know, me to go there. But 
you know, I'll, I'll see if I can create some nice, fun videos, journalistic videos, or, you know, interactive stuff while I'm out there, make an effort of that. So, yeah, I'll try and maybe put my mo mobo journalism yeah. uh, interaction. Yeah. <laughs> see, uh, see what I've learned. Yeah, exactly. Yes. And from last time you were there, were there any players who you knew just hadn't done the preparation and you thought, I don't know, this is going to be just a bit of a Legends, fun Legends tournament and weren't actually prepared for the high-level cricket that was going to be played there? Yeah, look, for me, I think we were given the impression it's like a, only a benefit match standard and a lot of players that really work on, you know, didn't go in there as fully prepared and the next thing you know, the game was like full-on, like an IPO match and like 20,000, 30,000 people are turning up in the stadium. So it's an unreal feeling. And uh, we suddenly started everyone's trying to do a lot more gym sessions, getting the run sessions in, trying to get as fit as they can. So I think it's just, um, you begin to realise how serious these tournaments are. There's a lot of ex-IPL legends who play in these leagues now. So yeah, it's, it's going to be a very high standard. It's, it's not going to be like just Mickey Mouse. Yeah. And I wonder, let's find on this, which players are you most looking forward to playing with and equally are you least looking forward to playing against? In your time out, yeah. Look, I've, I've, you know, um, like there's, there's, there's some good players on both sides. Like India Maharajas, you know, obviously, you know, I'm enjoying enjoy playing against Harper John Singh. Uh, I've never got, you know, Yusuf Patan. I've never got out. You know, he was in my other team. So some of them are ex teammates. Um, in the Asian Lions, you know, I always like catch up with Murli Shrabakta. Um, uh, and then they've got some good players in their side as well. Miss Bullard, Hark, um, couple of good players. In our team, got Chris Gale, Brett Lee, Shane Watson, you know, good guys. It'd be nice to catch up with all of them. Chino Best, all of that. So, yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. And then um, I wondered, do you feel those competitive juices start flowing again? Like, is this the, I'm trying to say, I imagine nothing can come to the highs and the lows and the, the adrenaline rush of playing an Ashes match, for example, or realising at the end of your mark that Sachin Tendulkar is, is on the other end. Um, but, yeah, it, it, how much of a... of a um, How close do you get when you play to that feeling of, oh, I'm a professional cricketer again, and how good does that feel? Yeah, it feels great, you know. All the people are there and everything, and then it's something that reminds you that, yeah, this is a skill set I had, and this is, this is the level I can play. So it's a great feeling, and it, it's good that they have these leagues because... For one thing, which I, for the fans all over the world to watch the ex-IPL stars, ex-Test match cricketers back in action. And also, um, it helps us as cricketers to stay fit, stay connected to the game. Like, I want to obviously, you know, work on my broadcasting commentary area. So it gives me an opportunity to, you know, to work on them skills. So, yeah, many reasons. So these leagues are very important, you know, that they keep developing and then when they crank more of them because as cricketers that's what we are we're players but and it helps us to stay relevant in cricket and in the media mm, yeah no i mean i'm i'm really looking forward to to seeing you roll back the years and 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 spin spin yourself to victory out there um and i'm sure many of our listeners will also be tuning in to yeah. see you well um now monty final category and this is a bit of a bonus category a bit of fun um if you were going to have any meal any snack, any any of cricket teas, almost at this match that you're watching for the final time in your in, in your life. What would the lunchtime break snack or the cricket teas be for you? It would just have to be the Lord's lunches. 
you know, a lovely tomato pasta or mushroom stroganoff or, um, you know, a, like a a Thai veggie curry, anything like that. It's just beautiful how they make the food there. It's absolutely five star. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you the mushroom stroganoff then. A five, okay. a five star mushroom stroganoff from the uh, from Lords. Um, that is something I'm sure that many people will wish a, a money can't buy experience, wishing they could go and um, go and have a Lords lunch, given the reputation it's got. Um, now, Monty, before I make you miss your flight to Qatar, let me just run through your choices and check you're happy with your final time watching cricket and who you will see. Um, and hopefully you might be able to stomach not being able to watch cricket ever again if this is the final chance that you get. So you'll be at Lords, watching on with your with your international teammates. The battle will be Sajjan Tendulkar, and he'll be facing up to Shane Warne. Graham Smith will be captain. And out of, I guess, a bit of a bit of vindication, a bit of spite for the fact you were struggling to get him out. Um, your chosen fielder was Andrew Flintoff, given how just rocket, how much of a rocket arm he had. Um, behind the stumps will be Matt Pryor. The commentator will be the one and only Nasser Hussain. And your lunchtime snack will be a mushroom stroganoff from Lords. Um, how does that sound to you? Sounds like a perfect day. <laughs> the perfect day. Well, that's all we can really ask for. Uh, Monty, it's been such a privilege to speak to you. Thank you for being so generous with your time. Um, and I, and I'm sure I speak on behalf of the listeners too when I say this. We wish you all the best for the future, and look forward to seeing what else you will no doubt achieve in broadcasting, in journalism, in cricket, or or otherwise. So, so thank you again for taking the time to speak to me. Yeah, thank you very much, and uh, all the best with your podcast and future endeavors. What struck me most from speaking with Monty might surprise you. It certainly surprised me. It wasn't that he had the successes he had. His work ethic and rare natural ability took care of that. It wasn't even that within the pressure cooker of international cricket. He has battled and overcome poor mental health. No. It was that he didn't feel his cricketing successes were diminished by the cartoonish, almost sycophantic obsession that followed Panasar at the height of his career. But on reflection, this is hardly surprising. To succeed as Monty did, you must have a level of ambition and confidence seldom enjoyed by mere mortals like you or I. And for as long as that remains the case, Monty will continue to do that which sparked his astronomic rise, helped him snag all those test wickets, and ultimately, be where he is today. That is to say, Monty continuing to be exactly that and nothing else. Monty. That's it for this episode of the Cricket Chronicles. So much work goes into each episode, so please do take the time to subscribe, they even give us a rating, it takes 10 seconds, it's completely free, and makes a world of difference to us all. As always, you can get in touch with me, at Olvalori on Twitter, or follow the podcast at Crick Chronicles to keep up to date with the latest news, features, and guest updates. We'll be back very soon. Take care.